This is the Canopy Life Podcast. We are a community of joyful, generous, and stubbornly hopeful people. We believe that beauty, belonging, and innovation can change the world. And we are committed to a future where Kenyan children become godly innovators who lead their communities out of poverty. This is a year of interviews on the Canopy Life podcast. We'll be interviewing people all year who we can learn from, specifically people who also believe beauty, belonging, and innovation can change the world. In today's episode, Christy and I had the honor of sitting down with Justin Miller, the CEO and co-founder of Care for AIDS. Justin is a husband, father, author, co-founder, and CEO of Care for AIDS. He recently published a book, Beyond Blood, which you can find on Amazon, and he joins us today to talk about how entrepreneurship, innovation, and education can help lift people out of poverty and even save millions of lives. Those things, uh, Justin, lifting people out of poverty and saving lives, particularly in East Africa, almost seem to go hand in hand. Uh, Would you agree with that? I would. First of all, thank you, Evan and Christy, for having me (laughs) on the podcast. Uh, It's an honor. Yes, I would agree that the main reasons that lead to uh, so many deaths in Africa related to Uh health and related to water and nutrition and disease. And so, and a lot of those are driven by the fact that people are living in poverty. Mm -hmm. So those two are closely linked and that's part of of what Care for AIDS is trying to, to help solve. Yeah, totally. So give us a quick rundown before we jump into more details here. What is Care for AIDS and how did it come to be? Care for AIDS, uh, very simply, exists to empower people to live a life beyond AIDS. Mm. We've been trying to do that for 13 years. That's, it's harder than that statement would, uh, would lead you to believe, but we have been working uh, in starting it in Kenya and now in Tanzania and Uganda mm. to help the most vulnerable living with HIV who are facing all kinds of uh, trauma and crises through uh, access to healthcare, uh, emotional trauma, uh, unemployment, the stigma and discrimination that they face every day because of their HIV mm-hmm. status, the, mm-hmm. the forces that are on these families are so great. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, what happens too often is that uh, parent or parents die of HIV and then we see this explosion of orphans that happens mm-hmm. and is still continuing to happen despite the progress that we're making with this pandemic. So mm-hmm. our, our heart, our vision is to work uh, in and through the local church. That's our, uh, mm-hmm. that's our method of getting care to those who need it most. And we have 70 communities that we work in currently. Wow. That's insane, and, that's awesome. And we have a model that I'm very, I'm very proud of the model. Uh-huh. I had very little to do with the model, <laughs> but I have incredible uh, indigenous staff and leaders who over the last 13 years have created a way to take these uh, individuals who are in many cases very sick, hmm. very alone, uh, lacking the resources they need to care for themselves and their families and mm-hmm. taking them through a nine-month program where we try to holistically look at addressing their needs, mm-hmm. helping them to heal physically, suppress their viral load with HIV, Mm. uh, giving them uh, the the confidence and restoring the the dignity and worth that has been been taken Mm. from them because of 
HIV and then giving them the skills to be able to provide for themselves and their family. Mm. And, and our prayer is that it will change the trajectory of their family mm. for generations because a parent or parents are now able to be in the home, raising the kids, walking along with them in their education mm-hmm. journey, discipling them spiritually. Right. Um, the discipleship piece is core to our model. And, and we've just seen radical life transformation. We've had 20,000 people complete our program. Wow. All of those are individuals who have been diagnosed with HIV AIDS? 20, yeah, individuals living with HIV who represent, on average, about three kids per household. Wow. Um, and some have spouses. Some of them are um, widowed or, or separated. But in all, we're probably close to about 100,000 mm-hmm. people directly or indirectly touched by the services of Care for AIDS. And we've seen not just the individual transformation, but we've seen communities start to change. And and definitely our partner churches are starting to change who are hosting these programs. And and we believe that while we were not the only actor in this, we think the conversation on HIV has changed at the Kenya level Mm. over the past decade. And a lot of it, I think, is because the church in many ways has stepped up and said, we're going to lead in Mm. this as opposed to just running away from it, which is what they historically have done. So it's it's been an amazing journey. I love one of the uh, phrases that you guys use, orphan prevention. Like there's not many people who use that phrase and it's so applicable. Not many Mm -hmm. people can claim that, but when you talk about a community of 100,000 people, you know, that, and many of them would have become orphans without care for AIDS intervention, that's that's incredible. That's changing lives. I'm quickly reminded of, of why we're talking to you today and, and just uh, the thought that you and Christy have a close relationship and, and know each other because all the things that you're talking about are things that Christy and I have talked about with this podcast so mm-hmm. many times before, uh, the skills, uh, empowering people that can then change their communities and, and the impact that making the difference in the life of one really does uh, have on, on the communities that those individuals are a part of. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, these these people in Kenya. Uh, you wrote the the book Beyond Blood with two other individuals. Uh, would you mind sharing their names with us? Yes, Cornell and Yango and Duncan Kimani. Okay, Cornell and Duncan. For, uh, I will I will use their first names yes. for lack of ability. <laughs> uh, so Cornell and Duncan, you you wrote this book with, and Cornell shared his story. They both actually share their stories throughout the book. Uh, but I read through some of their stories and there was this quote from Cornell that really stood out and seems like a a good jumping off point uh, to go deeper into this conversation. He says, a good student at a poor school only gains entry to a system that later locks them out. Have you seen that to be, uh, have you seen that in your experience in Kenya? The short answer, yes. Uh, the, the longer answer, and, and you guys are asking me to wade into education where you guys are the experts here. So, uh, And I know there are reforms that have been happening mm-hmm. in Kenya. I still, I know very little about how those are going and, and how successful they are. But the reality of it is, in Cornell's story, I mean, you, you create more and more access to primary level education, which is, I think, one of the things that has been going pretty well in Kenya. But there are still vast disparities in the quality of that education and even Cornell and he learned how to use a keyboard by imagining a keyboard mm-hmm. and he had no resources and then you, you know, obviously you ask people to take a single test to kind of determine their fate and mm-hmm. then the barriers that present at secondary level mm-hmm. are so great 
not just the number of spaces, but the quality, the cost, and many people, like you said, get locked mm-hmm. out. That repeats itself in higher education. And then it repeats itself as people enter a workforce that's not really ready to accept mm-hmm. a lot of students that are coming out of university. Mm-hmm. So it, it is a problem, and I'm glad you guys are working <laughs> on fixing it. Right. But yes, I would say that it is. Uh, it really is a, a miracle that Cornell and Duncan in the kind of school that they were in in the mm-hmm. village were able to get on this journey and, and they value education so much as you know in East Africa that um, Cornell's pursuing his PhD now because mm. that's oh, cool. something so that's cool. so, so valuable how does that how has that or have you seen the connection between that educational system and the AIDS epidemic itself I mean child childhood education about the epidemic does it even exist if it does it it's got to impact that somehow. It does. So there's the more explicit teaching about HIV and AIDS in the schools, which is sometimes missing. And mm-hmm. in a culture that is, is a very conservative evangelical background, I mean, even some of the conversations around sex ed and health right. are it's very taboo. So right. I feel like your people are pushing against that at the right. school level. But as you know, that's kind of an explicit way that it helps the crisis, but also helping, especially young girls mm-hmm. in school. I mean, you can see a direct link mm. to girls who are not in school to the amount of physical and sexual violence that they experience. Right. And it's not just about taking them out of the village for right. the day, but it's just helping them to have that confidence and to be empowered to know that they have agency and right. they have choice. And so, you know, and then education obviously links a lot to poverty and as we know poverty is is a driver of a lot of the mm-hmm. hiv pandemic and even as girls get out of school and feeling like they have to engage in sex work because that's the only way to take care of their family so right. there's so many factors but i think education is at the core what's available for adult education on hiv like on aid the aids what are there institutions out there that are educating or is it you know, I don't, I don't think there's a lot. Honestly, I think the best path for adult education is through the church. Mm. On, on, on HIV, HIV and probably a host of other mm. social issues that we need to be talking about. And mm-hmm. then that's, no, that's an area where the church has not been willing mm. to really wade into. Mm-hmm. But you think about there's no barrier to entry. Right. Uh, and, and a lot of Kenyans are, you know, uh, members or participants in a church. And, and so that is... Where we believe we have to, we partner with pastors mm-hmm. who are willing to talk openly about HIV and AIDS from the Interesting. pulpit, yeah. and even give us a chance to stand in the pulpit and, and preach yeah. about it as well. Because that, that I think that is the only way that, besides what adults are consuming through their phone, it's probably the wow. only way that they're getting messages on these topics. How do you find pastors who, I mean, in a country that legitimately rarely even talks about sex? And sex, how do you identify pastors that are willing to advocate for this? From how does that work? I'm so I'm just I don't even know how to ask the question. Like <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it's it's outside of my realm, but also it's yeah. so rare. It is, you know, it is. But thankfully, times. I mean, they they are changing in Kenya. They are changing, <laughs> and I would say that 12, 13 years ago, you we wouldn't. were very very mm. hard pressed mm. to to connect with. Any pastors that would be one willing to speak about it, two, they'd just be willing to invite, not just invite, but encourage people with HIV to come into their church. Mm. 
not just for the stigma of, well, you have done something, you have sinned, mm. you know, you are unclean. I mean, whatever, however you want to say it, but also just the fact that pastors believe that why would I want to invite more sick people into my church? Because mm. they're, and, and obviously it's not the kind of mindset we would want leaders of churches to have, but mm-hmm. the mindset of like, I'm, you know, I'm barely making it with the people I have, mm-hmm. and now I'm going to be inviting people that are sick and need additional More support. Need, yeah. I don't have the ability to meet that. But over time, we've just continued to see pastors that are just opening awesome. their doors. And we go into a community, and we used to, we might survey a dozen churches to try to find one that fit what we were looking for. Now churches are sending us uh, invitation letters That's uh, amazing. to say, come, come do what you're doing in our church. And I think they see yeah. that, um, I think they're one realizing that, that this is what they're already supposed to be doing as mm-hmm. a church and we can help them do that better. Mm-hmm. And that this is actually a way for their church to, to grow and to flourish as if they actually are reaching out to those that are in need and caring for them. Right. Is most of the, is the invitation happening from the pulpit or the education itself happening? Like invitation to the program or how does that relationship with the pastor work? Yeah, the, they are very open about letting the people know that there mm-hmm. is a program in the church that if you gotcha. need support in this area, we would love to welcome you into. Mm-hmm. And so there's an education piece, the invitation to join the program. and uh, But w- when we select the clients to join our program, whether they're a member of the church or just a community member, that mm-hmm. it's not a criteria right, that we right. look at. I have to imagine Duncan and Cornell's stories play heavily into to what you're talking about right now as well. I believe it was Duncan's parents, Duncan's father, who was a pastor in Kenya uh, years before it was okay or as okay to talk about as it is today. And Cornell grew up in a community that was impacted uh, by HIV uh, very seriously. And so they're uh, over in Kenya interacting with these pastors and I'm sure sharing their stories of how just learning about what this is and and encouraging people to uh, talk about it in the context of community has to has to be very impactful for pastors over there who are maybe on the line of of whether they want to talk about this or not yeah Cornell and Duncan before I even even launched CareFrames they were doing pastors forums in Mm. uh, local communities and, and just bring pastors together, give them some chai, and tell them, hey, you guys need to do something. And mm-hmm. at that time, they didn't have the resources to do anything beyond that. But they've they've been preaching this uh, to the Kenyan church for the better part of the last 20 years. And so their influence, both as young, emerging, um, passionate leaders in Kenya, and also as guys from two opposing tribes, Mm-hmm. Uh, it speaks volumes. Uh, it's very easy for an organization to become, oh, that's a Kikuyu organization. That's a, a mm. Luo organization. But uh, because everybody in the country pretty much aligns with one of those two tribes politically, uh, and we don't wade into that unless we have to, but um, it's easy for people to connect with what, and, and have in, for Cornell that can have influence over churches because of the way they've been unified despite the fact they're from opposing tribes. It's, it's a, a very powerful picture you've painted, uh, the, the type of impact that two people can have uh, who come from different ideologies, if you will, mm-hmm. if I can use that word uh, 
whenever they come together and they're and they're able to have a relationship with each other that's very powerful uh cornell gives a a beautiful and frightening metaphor that's my description of of this metaphor that he gives towards the beginning of this book and he talks about lake victoria which is uh, I, I believe near the village that that he grew up in that's right and the water hyacinth uh, which he describes as a, a beautiful looking but invasive weed uh, that sits atop the water and restricts oxygen to everything below it. He writes, It's crazy to think how one living thing can ravage an entire population. He never fully connects the dots here, but my, my assumption is that this is an image of the role AIDS played in his community in, in East Africa and Kenya. Uh, is that accurate? Yes, yes, and it's it is it's a it's a beautiful metaphor and, and, and frightening as well. But yeah, just the the way that that the water. I mean, water in and of itself is also life, mm, and yeah. and mm. to see that metaphor in this whole Lake Victoria, like that was our livelihood. Um, that was where we fished. That was where we mm-hmm. got we took we uh, drew water from. That's where I bathed. But like mm-hmm. then the hyacinth not only drained the life out of the the lake along with overfishing and mm-hmm. pollution, a lot of other stuff. Right, right. But yeah, HIV suffocated the community. And I remember my first trip there, mm. walking through the community and, and at times literally seeing just a black X on a door. And, mm. and I said, that's, the home's closed. There's no one else there. They've all died or the kids have been scattered among family or, or mm. in the streets. But uh, in a community like his, where they still say the infection rate is, is over 20%, Wow. There's really not a, a home that has not been touched by HIV, and it has just, as the hyacinth has, it's just, it's just suffocated the, mm. the community. Mm. One, one more note from Cornell here, and personally one of the most impactful lines from the book. He says, people could not, and I add here, weren't allowed to, if, if that's accurate, let me know. Uh, people could not, weren't allowed to speak about what they did not understand. It seems as though to make any progress, whether it be fighting for the AIDS epidemic in Africa or living out a life of faith, we need to have permission to speak about things that we don't understand. How has Care for AIDS created a place for this to happen? And maybe we touched on this a little bit with the church communities, um, but how has Care for AIDS created a place for this to happen around a topic uh, that has so great a stigma, even though it, it's come a long way? Uh, there's, there's still this stigma attached to mm-hmm. talking about something that uh, people may not know, know much about. Yeah, I mean, what, a, what a question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You're you're pulling things that we probably didn't even think about when you were writing it, uh, but it's it's it's, it's really uh, thought provoking and and I think we did talk about some of it tactically. We can create a safe place right. for people to come and know that my HIV status is going to be protected in this program, and there's a level of mm-hmm. trust and confidentiality. There's um, us as leaders and pastors going first in this conversation and talking openly about it so that there's mm-hmm. not a fear that mm-hmm. lives within our clients. But I think on a, on a deeper level, there is this invitation for our, our clients to come to us and share about whatever that lived experience is. And for those, mm. some of those people you could look at and you, you might be tempted to, to laugh at it, to shame mm. it. Mm. I mean, you, someone says, I am cursed. Mm. Like, I dishonored my family and I'm cursed with HIV. You could, 
you could in a person who's sitting in a council role could say you know i'm just going to correct that i'm going to like uh, it's not true dismiss right, it right right but we have to find a place where people can share their lived experience mm-hmm. we can listen affirm that mm-hmm. but then we can also help them pursue truth in community with the people that are in mm-hmm. the carefree program and our group counseling is really the best forum mm-hmm. for that when they sit in a group and they start talking about um, what they've lived through and how they've dealt with it and other people mm-hmm. are affirming them and and but we're guiding them to to see see truth i think that's it's an important part of of that that we don't mm-hmm. you know a lot of people have probably just told them in their past like you're you're you know this is all in your head you're making it up it's right right it's, mm-hmm. you, you know you you don't know what you're talking about so we have to create that kind of space and I think Mm -hmm. our counselors do an amazing job of inviting people into that as you're talking it just reminds me that this is why we're talking to you like we believe beauty belong at canopy life beauty belonging and innovation can change the world we define beauty as wholeness right like flourishing a thriving life and that's what you're wanting for your clients customer the people who come through the program but what you're describing that is removing the stigma is belonging it's saying you're not going to be judged here. There's a safe place where we're going to meet you where you're at and walk with you instead of instruct you from afar how to get where you need to go mm. and throw things at you to hope, hoping that you know how to use them to get through. It's like we're going to create a space where your identity is transformed, which it leans back towards beauty. Right. But also, like, belonging is so transformative. It's such a huge part of the human transformation, right? You can't truly transform without a sense of belonging and like that's I don't know I don't think I expected that coming into this interview so it's really encouraging to hear I think I knew in my gut there was alignment uh, but it's just so cool to hear that belonging is leading your clients towards a life of beauty right like towards a thriving life it has constantly amazed me since I got into nonprofit how how many people are okay with Africa having their basic needs met but don't really care if they have a thriving life right like they and it's just because we consider basic needs something we're all obligated to provide for one another but getting someone to a flourishing thriving life isn't as important and so it's just so cool to see other organizations that are helping people not just survive right but live a we you said earlier abundant life or a thriving life beyond aids right like Mm -hmm. that it's it's just so cool thank you so much justin for being a part of this podcast Excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> well, this is why I don't do live podcasts. <laughs> it's real. I'm, I might just leave it. <laughs> do it. It'd be good for my ego. <laughs> Thank you, Justin, for being on this podcast, for being a part of this podcast, for sharing your story yes. and the story of your organization with yeah. the Canopy Life community. Uh, it is really cool to see people... I think I'm just piggybacking off of everything Christy said, helping individuals not just survive, although that is definitely a part of what you're doing, but find belonging and really thrive in their lives. Uh, For people who are interested more in what you're doing, would you like to point them in any direction? Yes. I would encourage them to go to careforaids.org to learn more about our work. Uh, If you are looking for... Uh, a, a book to read. Mm-hmm. I'd encourage you to pick up Beyond Blood. Uh, it's 
I think it's just an amazing story. I would agree. I'm going to throw a plug in here too. (laughs) I am not completely finished with it, which is worth mentioning here, but the way that this, that, uh, your story and Cornell's story and Duncan's stories are, are told throughout this book is impactful and, and, uh, also engaging. So if, if, uh, I don't know, I kept walking into Christie's office being like, this is a good, this is an awesome book. <laughs> like, and I'm not just saying that cause I, I read it because we were coming to this podcast, but if I didn't know about this podcast, this is a book that I, I would mm-hmm. hope somebody would recommend to me, uh, to hear a, a, an awesome story, to hear a story of what life is like, uh, in somebody else's shoes, uh, not in the United States. Uh, it's an exercise in empathy and, uh, it's an engaging exercise in empathy, which is, uh, even cooler. Well, thanks for saying that. I really, I think it's a timely book, just the state of our world. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, we can't draw, I don't want to draw parallels that aren't there, but just in terms of the divisions that we feel mm-hmm. in our world right now and the visions that Cornell and Duncan feel as opposing tribes mm-hmm. and a very tense political situation in Kenya right now. Uh, and then a 19 year old college student when this book starts <laughs> Just the three of us coming together, mm-hmm. it's just really a testament to what we like to call redemptive relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What it's like when you're crossing those divides, whatever they may be, um, political, racial, religious, whatever those are, and engaging with people authentically on the other side of that. I think mm-hmm. it just has a, a transforming uh, impact. So yes, and you know, I would encourage you to read that. I have some content on justintmiller.com as well. But there's also just, uh, you can find us on all the social platforms at Care for AIDS, and we'd love for you to to follow along. And people can donate on your website as well. They can donate? Okay. Awesome. Whatever form they want to donate in. (laughs) You know, you know, it's all too well. No, right. You guys lead trips to Kenya. We do. We're hoping to start to ramp those back up this year. We we miss that so much. But yes, you're all, all invited to come with us on a trip sometime. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Uh, and Justin, we end every episode by saying Asante Sana. So uh, would you join us in saying Asante Sana? <laughs> yes. All, all together? Or all just, together. Okay. Asante, Asante Sana. Sana. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Canopy Life podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Care for AIDS, visit their website, careforaids.org. Also this year on the Canopy Life podcast, we're going to get to hear from somebody in the Canopy Life community at the end of every one of our episodes. And today you are hearing from Shannon. Hey, my name is Shannon. I live in Sandy Springs, Georgia, but I'm originally from Cincinnati, Ohio. I love being a part of the Canopy Life story because I am passionate about empowering students in Kenya to become godly leaders. I am a part of the Canopy Life Village. We are a community of people who are joyful, generous, and stubbornly hopeful. We believe that beauty, belonging, and innovation can change the world, and we are committed to a future where Kenyan children become godly innovators who lead their communities out of poverty. Mm